Welcome back to the Book of Mormon with Grandma. Well, we're in chapter 15 today, going slow, but we're going to make it down to the end of the Isaiah chapters, I promise. Chapter 15 is considered a parable and is similar to other parables that uses the same imagery. In the New Testament, we have the parable in the vineyard, along with a few others that use similar imagery, like the wicked husbandman and the two sons. And in Jacob 5 is also the allegory of Zenos. The difference is that Isaiah tells us the parable and the interpretation and then gives us six warnings about what's coming to the northern kingdom. Okay, let's go read it. Uh, this is in starting in 15 verse 1. And then will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. The change from the Old Testament um, is that of the Book of Mormon says, and then instead of now at the beginning. So the Old Testament says, now will I sing to my well-beloved. He's saying, let me tell you about Christ's song about his vineyard or Israel. Okay, back to two. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. So he fenced it, meaning he protected it like one would do for their real vineyard and removed the stones, meaning he took all the stumbling blocks away. Some have said the tower is the temple and some said prophets. So either way, he gave them something to help them succeed. He hoped the vineyard or Israel could bring forth good grapes or do good things, but they did not. Wild grapes are the small sour variety that are not good for use. Okay, back to three. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. We find this same phrase in the allegory of Zenos in Jacob when he asks, what more could have been done to my vineyard? He did everything he could have done for them without taking away their agency, but ultimately, they had their agency to do what they wanted. It's what we all fought for in the pre-existence. He had to let them choose. I'm sure this was a very sad thing for the Lord to see all the plans he had made to make them a covenant people, and their choices led to bad behavior. But here again, it's where we can liken ourselves to this scripture and see the plans the Lord has for all of us to choose well and to be covenant people, and how he must feel when we do not. Okay, let's go on to verse 5. And here is the plan for what comes next. This is the punishment for the vineyard. Uh, verse 5. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. The hedge or the wall or the fenced off portion is going to be broken down. There'll be no more protection from wandering animals that will come in and trodden the vineyard down. The Lord's protection is now going to be taken away and Jerusalem will be overrun from invaders and they'll eventually be taken into captivity. There were famines in the land during this time as well. But Andrew Skinner also said that this was also spiritual rain. Spiritual rain was revelation and there would be none of that. Okay, back to seven. Now Isaiah tells us the interpretation. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. 
So from here on out in verses 8 through 24, we see some of the things that caused their downfall and the destruction that comes upon Israel. And eventually they're invaded by other countries and carried away into captivity. So let's take a look at some of their problems. This is verse 8. This was being greedy with the land. The wealthy were taking the land and the homes of the poor and leaving them nowhere to go. And because of that, verse 9 then tells us that many houses will be left desolate and many of the cities will have no one in them. And verse 10 talks about how little will be gleaned from their vineyards. A famine is coming for them and agriculture will be pretty much cease. Verse 11 talks about how they're drunk most of the time and living riotous lives. Verse 12 says they've all, they have all the signs of worship, but they're not really worshiping the Lord. Again, like in the scriptures to our day, I think sometimes that can describe the world today. Many claim to be Christians and may go to church every Sunday, but their lives are nothing like a Christian should be. I can remember when I was young, I had a Sunday school teacher who was there every Sunday teaching us the things that the Lord wanted us to know. And then I saw her out on Main Street with a bunch of people drinking and not acting like my Sunday school teacher. So the result of Israel's lack of worshiping the Lord correctly is now in verse 13. And this is what it says. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. They have no knowledge because they didn't want to learn. They didn't want to do whatever it took to become like the Lord. Their honorable men are famished means there are no more righteous leaders to teach them what they need to know. And the whole bunch of them have no righteousness in them. They are dried up with thirst. They were all suffering of their own choice with famine and thirst of not knowing God, all the reasons they were taken into captivity. Some may be suffering the same famine and thirst today in our lives because they lack the spiritual knowledge to find the Lord. There are so many things that can draw us away from the um, Lord, the internet, false teachers, believing like we talked about last time that they're wiser than the Lord. In the end, he says they'll have to be humbled and repent because the Savior's coming back and either they can humble themselves or be forced to be humbled. So now Isaiah gives us a series of woes. A woe is a calamity or a sorrow or something that causes trouble. So let's start in verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. He's saying woe to them who pull their sins around behind them and tie themselves to their sins. It's difficult to become untangled from those same ropes and cords. Maybe an example of something like this in our world today are all those who glory in their dishonesty. We sometimes punish people for lesser sins, but we allow businesses to make gross mistakes and sins and do nothing. They're so entangled in their sins that they think it's okay. Maybe you could think of other examples of that. Okay, back to 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, this is a famous scripture, but oh my goodness, do we have this today where people call evil good and good evil. We could sit and make a list a mile long of ways this is prevalent in our day today. But maybe you can stop here and think of some examples of this today. Satan would truly like to blur the lines between good and evil, between right and wrong. Okay, let's go on to verse 21. Woe unto the wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight talked about this in the last podcast, um, those who think they're smarter than others and smarter than God, that they've made their own way in life and earned their own living. One person said that when we think we're so wise that the word of God no longer applies to our situation, it is sin. 
We think we do not have to ask God what he thinks about how to handle a situation because we know better. Okay, let's go on 22. Woe unto the mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong, strong drink. And of course, drunkenness was one of their problems. Grandpa and I were talking about this not long ago, how you can never watch a movie or a show anymore that someone isn't drinking or offering a drink. It always seems to be the thing that comes at the end. Let's celebrate with a drink. Let's toast that victory. But this is more than just everyone being drunk. This is men of strength who engage in drunkenness. And though this does not say woe at the beginning, this next one, it goes along with the former woe. Verse 23, who justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. What do you think this might be? You can choose what you think it is, but let me tell you a couple of things I found from others. How about those who take bribes? How about corrupt governments or people or businesses who take money and look the other way? How about all the sports people and celebrities who are paid a large sum of money to get you to buy what they're selling, even if it's not good for you? Those things can often lead the righteous away from their righteousness. So we can see that a lot of the things that brought down the the Jews are the same things that we experience today that might be our downfall as well, if we're not careful. In the end, Isaiah says the Lord provides a way for them to be brought back. Though the Lord was angry with them, he's not going to leave them forever, and he's telling them there is hope. This is in verse 26, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. An ensign is a standard or a flag or a banner or something to be seen by others to signal them to assemble. The word hiss is different than what we know it to be. This particular hiss means a signal that the gospel will go forth to all the ends of the earth. They'll come swiftly means that the gospel will roll forth quickly and Israel will be gathered quickly. Verse 28. Now see if you can figure out how the gospel will go forward by this description. Whose arrows shall be sharp and their bows bent and their horses hooves shall be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind like they're roaring like a lion and they roar like young lions yea and they shall roar and lay hold of the prey and shall carry away safe and none shall deliver. What do you think wheels like a whirlwind and roaring like a lion and hooves like flint would be? Well, Elder Legrand Richard said this about this time. In fixing the time of the great gathering, Israel seemed to indicate that it would take place in the day of the railroad train and the airplane. Since there were neither trains nor airplanes in that day, Isaiah could hardly have mentioned them by name. However, he seems to have described them in unmistakable words. How better could their horses' hooves be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind than in the modern train? How better could their roaring be like a lion than in the roar of the airplane? Trains and airplanes do not stop for night. Therefore was not Isaiah justified in saying, None shall slumber nor sleep, neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. With this manner of transportation the Lord can really hiss unto them from the end of the earth, that they shall come with speed swiftly, indicating that Isaiah must have foreseen the airplane, he stated, Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? That was Legrand Richards. Israel will be gathered with speed. Think of how our missionaries are sent to different areas of the earth and help the prey or the converts to find the gospel and rescue them. 
We have more than 88,000 missionaries serving missions today, taking the gospel to all the world. Think of how quickly the gospel's grown over all the world. Membership in the church in 1830 was six people. By 1840, the church had grown to 16,865 people. By 1973, it was 100,000. By 1947, it was 1 million. By 1963, it was 2 million. And from 1982 to 1997, just 15 years, church membership doubled from 5 million to 10 million to where we are today at 17 plus million members. We've gone from 102 temples in 2000 to 335 today, with 188 dedicated, 52 under construction, and 95 announced. President Russell M. Nelson declared the Lord is hastening his work to gather Israel. That gathering is the most important thing taking place on earth today. Nothing else compares in magnitude. Nothing else compares in importance. Nothing else compares in majesty. That was uh, President Nelson. Truly, we can see that the Lord is gathering Israel and that this is the Lord's work that we're engaged in. So, until next time. <music>